Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, excuse me, I'm going to read. I have a little script here. Um, uh, I'm Edgar Walters. I'm the Health and Human Services reporter for the Texas Tribune. Thank you for being here on this splendidly humid and early morning. Um, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to our panel this morning, Fixing Foster Care. Um, just a brief overview for today. There are several different tracks going on. Um, so unless you are Hermione Granger from the third Harry Potter movie with your time turner, you're going to have to pick um, which panels you want to go to. So I suggest uh, checking your program. Um, we've got an, any number of great events lined up today. Uh, we've also got lunch on the main mall. You don't want to miss it. There's any number of food trucks. And of course, this evening, uh, we will have the reception at the AT&T Center, so hopefully you can all make it out there. Uh, this panel is supported by Upbring. Those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. Uh, this event will last 60 minutes, and we'll save the last 15 or 20 minutes for audience questions. We encourage thoughtful questions. Just be sure to uh, line up at uh, the microphones, and we'll give you the cue when to go ahead and do that. Uh, so with that, we will get started. Um, here to my left, we have State Representative Stephanie Click. She's a Republican from Fort Worth and a member of the House Human Services Committee. Uh, Madeline McClure is the founder and CEO of Tex Protects, an advocacy group for child abuse prevention. Uh, Susan McDowell is the executive director of LifeWorks, a youth and family service organization in Austin. Uh, Judge John Spisha uh, is the former commissioner of the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, which oversees child protective services and foster care. And State Representative Richard Pena Raymond, a Democrat of Laredo and the chairman of the Human Services Committee. Thank you all for being here. Um, so I just wanted to open up. Uh, in the last year, we've had any number of tough headlines for the child welfare system. Um, I've had to write several of these stories, including there was a spike earlier this year in the number of children who were spending the night in CPS offices um, for lack of placements elsewhere, um, as well as in psychiatric hospitals and um, spending more days there than normal. Uh, and we also saw several high-profile child deaths that generated TV headlines uh, and caught the attention of Governor Greg Abbott's office as well. Um, and then, of course, uh, we, there was the federal judge's ruling that the foster care system um, had violated, the long-term foster care system had violated children's civil rights. And then just this week, uh, State Senator John Whitmire told reporters that the state was, quote, warehousing children in a repurposed juvenile detention center in Northeast Texas. Um, so Judge Specia, I was hoping you could lead us off. <laughs> I'm a... Uh... <laughs> Pick any one of those subjects. <laughs> well, well, I'll leave that up to you. If I'm a uh, reform-minded Texas official in 2016, um, faced with all this, where do I start? Well, first of all, there's no silver bullet. I looked for it for three and a half years, not there. Uh, there are no simple solutions to complex problems. Uh, I think we should start with the foster care system really looking at how we are encouraging the capacity issue. Kids sleeping in offices, kids sleeping in psychiatric hospitals, that's all driven by a lack of capacity. Uh, and we have got to have an adequate number of homes and different types of facilities. We need a continuum of care where the child gets what the child needs. And, and what does that mean? I mean, what do you need to do to actually get more homes? Does that mean paying the parents more? Or how, how do you get people to do this? Well, first of all, our demographics are working against us. Just paying them more is not going to work. Uh, finding people willing to be foster parents in Austin is almost impossible because of the housing issues here. I think you're going to have to pay more, but that's not the solution. Uh, they have to be well-trained. One of the biggest issues is the kids in paid foster care today are very different than they were 10 years ago. They are much higher acuity. We're doing a great job of placing children with kin, 
40% of all the kids in the system are placed with kin. These are in the conservatorship of the state, placed with kin at basically no cost to the state. But the other 60% that are still in the system come in at a much higher acuity level. They just have more issues. And so the normal foster home we had 15, 20 years ago doesn't work for these kids. Frankly, permanency is, the, is what we need to be focused on. The foster care system needs to be focused on getting kids out of the foster care system. Ms. We McDowell, need a good system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the, the, hmm? Oh, I was just going to let Ms. McDowell sure. jump in. I see some nodding in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> we often do that. Uh, I, I, I would add to what you say, uh, to what you just said, and uh, I just this week read a uh, foster family gap analysis that was produced by Mission Capital at the request of the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation that helps us further define this what the, pro what the capacity problem is. It's not just a lack of homes, but we need to really look at who these, uh, who these kids are. And increasingly, they are older youth, youth who have spent a lot of time in care, and youth who, uh, who have a high acuity of needs, and multiple placements, with the tipping point kind of being you know, more than two placements within uh, 18 to 24 uh, Months. And all, all that's, of those. That's really the problem we're trying trying to solve is finding families, finding programs that uh, address the needs of, uh, of these youth. But to be clear, all of those demographic points you raise, right, are less appealing, right? Like a family is less likely to take in a child with higher needs, older. They become more. I would to place. I would say yes, and maybe part of the uh, the problem we're trying to solve is how to uh, produce adequate community supports for families and a lot of education on what, what the needs are of, uh, of youth. I think if we do a good job of that, we'll get, we'll get part of the way there. But absolutely, finding families that are willing to, uh, uh, to take on that journey is a but, And wrap the services around yes. those families. I mean, when we put higher acuity kids in a foster home, we have to have the services to support the children in that foster home. If the child moves more than twice, <clears throat> you're going to have a lot of problems. Frankly, well, if the child is in foster care after 24 months, you've got a big problem. Well, that's the issue right here is what the heck are we doing moving children around from one place to another to another after they've been abused, after their attachment to their parents have been broken, and every time they try to attach to a new caregiver, mm -hmm. they're ripped away. Well, what's the next step? Every Next stop? You're going to reject that caregiver before they reject you. We create high-acuity children. We create the high-needs foster children that are in psychiatric facilities. What we really need to do in regard to foster care is not just look at increasing the capacity. Let's look at increasing the number of kids stopping the flow into foster care. One thing you just said, speech, Dr. Speech, Dr. Speech, Commissioner. I'm, Dr. I'm, John, I'm, whatever you want. I'm promoting you by the moment. <laughs> is 40% of our kids are in kinship care. And then you said it pretty much zero cost. And what we know is that 25% of placement breakdowns with relatives break apart because of low income our kinship parents are much more likely to be undereducated, much older than average of foster cares, much more uh, vulnerable and, and so forth. And yet we place these kids with parents, grandparents on a fixed income that can't afford them. Now they're rejected again. So that's two placements. You've already got two placements. Their trajectory from there is gonna be bad. What we should be doing is taking the general revenue we use for foster care at this moment, which is about $10,000 per child per year in foster care, take 75% of that, 7,500, and put it with that kin parent and give them support, some training on trauma-informed care, but don't require them to read all these regulations of foster care that includes having a you know 10 by 50 room or whatever it is and let that child stay with their family. And you will also see kids not requiring foster care and will have state savings. So, um, so good, that, that leads right into my next point. I'm hearing services, I'm hearing addressing poverty. Uh, these all sound like things that cost the state money. Um, it's a, looks to be like 2017, maybe a year of some fiscal belt tightening. Um, a lot of state agencies have been asked to cut their budgets by 4% just going into session. 
Um, so my next question is for the lawmakers on the panel. Um, given those tough choices, what do you prioritize? One of the things that I would like to see uh, is in my region of the state, we are one of the pilots for foster care redesign. And in our area, it is a program that is working very well. Uh, you know, kids are staying in the area, in their community. Sibling groups are uh, staying together. Uh, and we need to find the, a way to roll that out in other areas of the state because it's been a very big success in my region. And, and that is the plan, right? I think there are eight sites, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of scheduled for, they're in the pipeline, right, as far as looking at redesign being rolled out. Do you, do you see that as scale? I mean, could that be done quickly? Or, or are we actually going to see that happen? It could be done, but it's going to require significant resources. Uh, uh, the program up in the Fort Worth area has invested about $4 million private dollars to make it work. It cannot continue and it cannot expand. So I absolutely, foster care redesign needs to be expanded and rolled out, but is gonna have to be funded adequately. Uh, the agency has flexibility, uh, the, the, the foster care agency up in, in the Fort Worth area has a lot more flexibility on creating placements for kids and specialized placements for kids that the state doesn't have right now. So yeah, we need to roll out foster care redesign but it's not going to be easy. It's, it's going to be every area is unique. We're going to have to find uh, nonprofit organizations that are willing to do it. But then unless they have an endowment where they can invest two, four, five million dollars, uh, the state's going to have to come up with some more money to support foster care redesign. Well, Representative Raymond, I, I haven't forgotten you, I promise. Uh, but do you think there, uh, there will actually be an appetite this session to actually get lawmakers to Fund, yeah. fund yeah. First, uh, so I've got to do a shout out to my horns, hook them horns, right? <laughs> University of Texas brings back a lot of memories for me and we're right next to the Texas ballroom and that brought back a lot of memories for me too. A lot of dancing in there and, uh, and a lot of uh, very interesting people I heard uh, for the first time in that room. Um, but yes, look, uh, when you have the governor, the lieutenant governor, the speaker of the house committed to uh, improving the foster care system in the state of Texas. There are many issues we have to deal with every session. The next session won't be any different. This will be one of the top issues. There's no doubt about it. Representative Click uh, and I on our committee are working this. It's one of the interim charges that the speaker assigned us. In addition to that, uh, we've set up uh, a work group of members, five Democrats, five Republicans. We've been working on this issue as well, apart from the committee. So we will make this system better. Uh, it uh, partly will take some money, there's no question about it, but importantly, it, it isn't always just, all right, just throw money at it, you gotta do it right. And uh, you know, I've gotten some pushback from people, well, why aren't y'all saying more? Why aren't you doing more? We need to put mon more money into it. We have to figure out between now and the end of the year, what, are the what I believe, what are the best recommendations we can make to the legislature to make investments uh, wisely. Um, you know, I talked about this, uh, Stephanie knows at our work group the other day. In 2009, I had legislation. I introduced legislation talking about kinship care, talking about trying to keep more kids with family and using some more money to do that, uh, but less money than it would take to have them somewhere else because this was a higher success ratio. And uh, you know, I, I didn't get a lot of support back then uh, Stephanie wasn't there yet, and so if she was, she would have helped me. But, you know, uh, back then, attitudes were different. Now, you, you see more members, both Democrats and Republicans, who say that can be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, uh, Judge Pisha, as commissioner, was able to establish the, uh, uh, the, the redesign in Fort Worth and the Fort Worth area. Uh, we're going to keep that. I guarantee you we're going to keep that and we're going to build on that in other areas around the state. So, so and, I, and I, I hear what you're saying and I, and I agree there's been a lot of, I mean, we've seen, right, the governor, lieutenant governor, folks on both sides of the aisle come out and say yeah. this is going to be a priority for the session. But are you actually seeing unity as far as what the reforms should look like? It's getting there. We're, well, we are going to be, yes, there'll be some debate when, we, when these bills get to the floor. Uh, there'll be amendments, we'll go back and forth, but at, at the end of the day, 
There will be uh, unity. may not be unanimity, but it'll be unity. We will get some reforms. It's going to be a better system. I'm very happy that there is the, the level of interest there is. Um, and I think a lot of kids in the future that are in the foster care system will benefit from it. Well, one of the <clears throat> comments we got from one of the big three is that the faith community needs to take care of these problems. And, you know, the faith community isn't the answer to the world. However, of course, the faith community has a role. And so I think that to solve the foster care issue, yes, of course, continue with redesign. There's no question about that. But we also do have to do some very strategic yeah. market outreach, advertising to those faith-based faith community centers. Um, you know, last night, Senator Huffine set up an advertising campaign. But I really think that our existing foster mothers, families, that you know, love their job as difficult as it is, as it is on the pulpit, invited in to speak to their their fellow congressional, uh, you know, congregation, and saying, you know, this is the toughest job I've ever loved. That's a great recruitment strategy. They've been there. They don't want to hear from CPS because the communities we really need to recruit parents from are the very place where we probably remove a lot of kids. So they look at CPS as kind of the enemy. You need to have a, a sympathetic figure asking you and telling you you need to uh, do this wonderful job. The other thing, though, is that we're missing is really where do rates really need to go up? Again, it's an economic question. We have got to do a cost of living adjusted increase or rate uh, adjustment for our, our foster care families. Raising a child in Dallas, Texas or Travis County is not the same as Gun Barrel, Texas. And so for some of those families, you know, they really can't take kids in. And that's the, the very areas where we have most of our removals. So I think we have to be smarter about rates and increase them, smarter about outreach, uh, targeted outreach to faith community, and emergency rooms where you get a lot of volunteers, do it that way. Plus, we have got to take care of our kids, putting them with families uh, that love them, and using technology to find relatives. There's a bunch of new technology, family finders, where we find on average 45 relatives per child. That's somebody the child knows, they're related to them, that's their best placement, and that's where we should be putting our money. And we can actually save state dollars because kids staying in kin stay in kin for only, uh, on average, 11 months versus 60 months. So it's an overall lower cost to the state. I, I, hear, I hear it. Um, I just Sorry to monopolize. I have no, to no, not at all. Not at all. Um, on that point, I think it's a very important point, though. We saw just um, this past year um, in kinship placements, or, or, or more specifically in, in these parental child safety placements, kind of a short-term placement with family or friends. You remove a child. CPS removes the child from the home. But for a short while, they're staying with uh, you know, somebody, somebody that the family knows. Um, uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen a number of high-profile, again, child deaths uh, in these situations, um, and which, um, you know, according to emails from the governor's office, really sort of prompted a lot of calls for change in the governor's office. And, and we saw, um, a, you know, a limiting of cutting, you know, cutting back on those placements in the name of safety. Um, what, uh, how, how do you strike that balance? Uh, um, I, I hear kinship is the answer, but I think maybe that's not the answer to, to everybody. Well, yeah, I mean, those parents for the, the parental child safety placements, those aren't necessarily fully vetted. We haven't done full home study on those. It's a quick placement. The background check isn't there. They're not offered any services. That one drowning in Dallas was as a result of that mother that took the child in needed childcare. She had to go to work. There is no child care that was offered that family. So that child was left home with a 13-year-old who, 13 who drowned her. You know, you can't just say kinship is a silver bullet like anything else. You know, the apple has to fall far from the tree, okay, and you've got to vet folks, you've got to do a background check, and you've got to give them child care and other supports we afford uh, foster families. So it's not just one or the other. I mean, there's other supports, financial and otherwise, that go along with kin that are critical. Judge Bisha, you were... You've been involved with the changes to parental child space. Kinship care, when you look at the research, overall you get better outcomes from kinship Absolutely. care. We need to be very careful about the selection of kinship care, and I agree, they've got to have similar supports. Uh, we, we need to help these families, these fixed income families, 
Uh, it's a lot cheaper than putting kids in foster care. But putting kids in foster care isn't a great choice. It is a good, very short-term solution. And we have got to focus on getting kids out of foster care within the first two years. Uh, Casey Family Program tried to provide the best foster care in the world about 15 years ago. They put a lot of money into it. They paid their foster parents. They did everything they could they, for permanent foster care. They did a study. They weren't getting any, any better results than anybody else. The issue is not having the greatest foster care program in the world. We want a good, safe foster care program, but we have to focus energy on permanency and getting kids out as fast as possible. We do a good job where a child goes into care and gets out of care quickly. We do a very bad job when, when a child grows up in foster care and ages out of foster care. Those are very expensive children to the states, and their outcomes when they age out are terrible. And so the, the, we've got to have a foster care system that is focused on permanency, not simply providing great care for the children and keeping them long term. So there's got to be kind of a philosophical shift to focusing on permanency by all of the child, uh, <clears throat> the agencies that are doing foster care and, and different types of care. Um, again, to that point, um, I remember writing a story this year. There was a number of people upset about the services when children age out um, of foster care, whether those um, you know, former foster youth were actually getting those services, which include um, you know, Medicaid, health insurance coverage, other kinds of you know, help with higher education, that sort of thing. Susan is the person that asked this question to <laughs> <laughs> um, wh Where do you see room for improvement? Oh, you know, I think we've got, like all aspects of, uh, of this, we have, we have a resource issue. So, uh, you know, all youth who age out have uh, access to uh, uh, both as they approach the age of emancipation, uh, kind of independent living skills training, and then as they age out, they have access to, in the state of Texas, uh, you know, waiver of, uh, of uh, state tuition, they have access to a case manager to help with um, uh, you know, basic needs, stability, that sort of thing. But like all programs uh, around this, you know, we're just resource strapped to meet the needs. Additionally, and so, there's and so you agree, needs are not being kids aren't getting the services that they're entitled to in, in a lot of cases. Uh, well, I think we are we are under resourced, so they may get services to to a certain extent, but. Maybe not the full extent. The other thing that, uh, that is important to note is that all of these services are optional for youth. And so let's think about this developmentally. You know, if you have had 15 placements, 20 placements, and this is, this is, a, this is a LifeWorks kid, right, mm. who, who's had these. If you turn 18, and, and also by the time you're 14 or 15, you have a good understanding that the people who are taking care of you have a contract to do that, right? Mm. In a residential treatment center, in a home, in a LifeWorks emergency shelter. And because of their multiple disruptions, you know, they experience a lot of breaking of contracts, right? And so what they're thinking is, you know, why do I, why do I have to do what these people say, right? How can I find my, my own sense of self-efficacy in all of this? So by the time they hit 18, really the default mode is, I'm out of here, exactly. guys. I am on my own. Too often, it's Travis County, they end up across the street in the LifeWorks Street Outreach Center or back in our shelter or in another situation where, you know, as a parent, as a, as a citizen, you think, well, that, that's not safe, right? That's like my worst nightmare as a parent. But for these youth, it is perhaps the first time they have felt in control of their destiny, right? right? And I think we need to, we need to honor that as an act of self-advocacy that simultaneously kind of makes us you know, cringe, right? So the services that are available, we find often a youth has to go through a little journey of self-discovery before then they come back and say, okay, I'm ready, I want to get off the street, and I understand you have some money I can access to do that. And we're like, great money, you know, come in now for case management. Or, mm. you know, okay, we can talk to you about our permanent supportive housing program over here. Mm. And that looks, that network of support also looks very different in different parts of the state. We are fortunate, we are beyond fortunate in Austin, Texas, that in addition to funding we get uh, from 
the federal government, the state government for these services. We have a very generous philanthropic base that you might also see in Dallas or Houston. You step outside these urban areas, you do not have that philanthropic right. base, right? So the range of support and the depth of support looks very different. Um, I want to I want to change course just a little bit. We've talked a lot about foster care capacity. I now want to talk about child protective services and kind of the investigation side, which I think is really a separate topic, but often ends up getting sort of conflated with the foster care discussion. Um, but in investigations, um, things like caseworkers. So every year, this could have been a question that I would have asked last year, but every year we see extremely high turnover of CPS caseworkers. Um, huge job vacancies. Um, uh, Representative Raymond, um, you're looking at this as a committee chairman. Um, what's the answer? Are, is it pay raises? Is it more, more job positions? How, how do you go about fixing this? Well, I mean, I think that um, it, it's a combination like anything. There are going to be some uh, arguments that in some areas of the state, uh, probably based in part on the case work, that the, the case load, rather, uh, that maybe the pay should be higher. You'll get, for example, uh, comparisons of a starting salary of a school teacher, starting salary of a first responder, and the starting salary of a CPS caseworker. Now, which one's more important? They're all important. So, uh, so, so should I, they all be paid equally? Or? Well, so uh, in some instances, in some communities, maybe, in others, maybe not. So we're going to look at that. Uh, but you know, uh, management is important as well. And uh, you know, Judge Bisha left uh, fairly recently. We have a new commissioner, Commissioner Whitman. Uh, he is he is as committed as Judge uh, Spisha was to trying to figure out what do we need to do management-wise to make it a better system. Uh, are there things we need to do in terms of salaries to make it a better system? It's going to be a combination of those things. It's going to be somewhere in there. Uh, I, I, we can't sit here in September and tell you for sure. We need to increase everybody's salary. I do think that we have to take a, a really hard look at casework, make sure that we define casework uh, so that uh, when we're dealing with a federal judge and we're de dealing with national standards, that casework and, and, and what a case means and case loads, et cetera, uh, that that's very clear uh, and make them manageable. This is really hard work. He'll tell you, the judge will tell you, and I'll tell you having dealt with caseworkers in Laredo, uh, it's, it is really hard work. Yeah. Um, and, and there, there are probably a few people in this room who could uh, do that for 10 or 15 years. Well, just before we get there, I just want to ask the same question to you, Representative Click. I mean, what, what do you think should be done about caseworkers, and do you see a salary increase on the table? I think that there are many different things that, that we need to be looking at. Uh, pay maybe in some areas, one, uh, but also uh, whether we need to increase in areas, the number of staff. I actually spent uh, a few days driving around with a caseworker and saw what their daily life was like and trying to find children that you need to see whether their welfare uh, is safe uh, in removing children. It was very eye-opening. Uh, it's hard work. They're going into dangerous areas many times. Uh, these families, although they may be abusing and neglecting their children, uh, will become quite hostile when they're told that their children are being removed. Um, and I think that there are some additional efforts uh, that are being made to make the workers safe out in the field. I think that that's very important. Do you, do you think that's enough, though, to... I mean, if you tell caseworkers, look, we've made these changes, you'll be safer. Is that enough to plug the gap of, of the shortage? I think a lot of these workers feel very overwhelmed. And I think that we need to make them feel and be more supportive in doing a very, very difficult job. Well, I think that's all right. But I do think we need to learn from history and look back at a time when turnover wasn't an issue. Believe it or not, it's not inevitable. We talk about CPS caseworker turnover across the country as if, you know, can't get around it. Actually, it, in Texas in the 1980s, in the uh, 83, 84, 85, 86, there's some really interesting data that CPS caseworker turnover was in line with the rest of the state employees at about 15, 17%. And at that time, 
guess what they were paid? You get paid more with a master of social work to work for CPS than you did at a local hospital. And right now that disparity is anywhere between 30 and 40, 50%. So a lot of people say, well, these people don't come into this field because of pay. Of course not, but they also have to pay their, they also have to raise their own families. So let's look at just the basic economic equation, okay? Labor economics 201, you know, what you pay is what you get and we need to attract higher quality, educated work, workers that self-select into a very difficult field. The fact is going into homes without backup, without a gun, in difficult areas is hard, but you absolutely have to pay them. You have to address their secondary traumatic stress that they get in the field, they need support. You absolutely have to reduce and keep their caseloads constant and you have got to cover that vacancy gap with smart business uh, just-in-time replacement practices. I'm really fascinated by this. What, I, though I don't know what um, the, the comparison you make is to a, an entry-level hospital employee, right? What social worker. Social worker, a hospital social worker. Um, dollar figure, ballpark, what, what are they making in a year? Yeah, so there's about, uh, the state auditor found there's a 27% disparity between what caseworkers get paid and their market. So that would be currently from 34 to about 44,000. But I think, again, cost of living adjusted salaries make the most sense. So in Dallas right now, you can get a teaching salary at 52,000. We lose a lot of our workers to the teaching profession. Why? They love working with kids. They want to give back. but and, and certainly teachers aren't higher paid. But they can make... Anywhere from, they go from 34 to 52,000. You know what? They're going to do that. So we've got to be competitive. Does that sound yeah, feasible? Yeah, is not the only thing. Workload is what's most well, important. Well, that's what I just the, said. The, that, yeah. the workload piece, they have got to have the right number of cases that they can actually go home and sleep. Uh, what's happening today and what's happened for a long time is the workloads are too high. Caseloads, you can't just talk about caseloads. It's workload. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, if they can't go home at night and rest and be with their own families, I don't care how much you pay them, they're not going to stay. And so it's a balance between pay, workload, working conditions. Uh, it's not a simple balance, and this issue is a national issue. Even where they pay very well, there's high turnover in investigations. Part of the problem there is lack of services. Most of the time, they don't remove kids. Most of the times, they try to provide something to the families to help them go on, and particularly in the rural areas and outside the urban areas, the lack of resources to assist the families. Child abuse and neglect is driven by substance abuse, domestic violence, poverty, uh, and behavioral health issues. Mm -hmm. If we don't have the resources to address those in the families, then it's a vicious cycle, and the workers get very, very frustrated by not being able to help the family, and the only option is removal. I would agree with all of that, and also add, to make it more complicated, uh, you know, and I've, I've spent more than 20 years in the human services field, and I, uh, particularly given the kind of growth and proliferation around what you can do with a master's in social work, which looks very different from what it was in the 80s and the economic opportunities, I am still shocked at how little really great people will work for if they're working for an organization and a mission where they feel they have a chance of success, a reasonable chance of success. The workload is reasonable, and they have a supervisor who is supportive and inspirational, right? Which is to say, absolutely on the resource issue, and all of the systems issues that, uh, that the judge has been trying to address over the last few years around building an organization with a supervisory infrastructure to be skilled and supportive and addressing the secondary trauma and all of these things is as essential as the, uh, as the money. I just want to make sure we understand what we're talking about with salary. Salary in and of itself is not going to be the silver bullet. However, think of what goes along with it. When you boost a salary, you get workers that are better prepared and educated and experienced and trained to do this work. Those are the kinds of people you want in the field and, in, and you want them to grow up to be supervisors. 
The problem we have now with supervision is that there's nobody to promote to that level except for these little baby workers, maybe with you know, 24 years old, two years in the field, that don't know. It's not a matter of just paying them more. Of course not. But there's a lot of elements to higher pay that recruit better self-selected employees, higher quality workforce. It retains people so that you have a workforce in a unit that will take a newbie and all mentor the newbie rather than everybody. 33% of our investigators leave every year. So a third of your workforce goes out the door. We have tried to do all these things at the margin and do supervision training and let's add more workers and let's give them PCs in the field and let's get the higher reimbursement, but we've never done a substantive salary increase, never. In my 18 years of advocating, this is the year or I'm quitting. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, um this is speculation, but maybe a, another source of uh, caseworker stress is probably that uh, if, a, or if an investigator is ever in the news, I would guess nine times out of ten, it's um, because there's, something has gone horribly wrong. Um, and we have seen a lot of emphasis, I think, from the governor's office, but just everywhere, looking at how do we curb, how do we stop child deaths? How do we stop these headlines? Um, but I wonder... Um, has the, ha, does that reduce the policy discussion? I mean, is that too narrow of a focus? Um, you know, has there been too much attention on when a child dies? There's never, no, there's never too much attention, of course. I mean, we, nobody wants any children to die. And um, so when that happens, you know, there's sort of heightened interest, right? Uh, and so, you know, in Spanish, there's a saying that uh, from something bad, something good comes, right? And so I think that this next session, as I said at the beginning here, um, there will be more interest in trying to do everything we can to prevent uh, more children from dying. Uh, you have that, clearly have that commitment from the governor, from the speaker, from the lieutenant governor, and again, I think from the legislature in general. Uh, and so we, we will make a better system. It won't be perfect because nothing is. But it will be a better system. We're going to build on what we've done. I think that's going to be a combination of many of the things you've heard today. Uh, there probably will be some increase, I'm guessing, okay, we'll see what the final bill says. But there will be some efforts to increase salaries in some areas and maybe in some positions, maybe based on experience, maybe based on uh, your education, et cetera. Uh, there are going to be efforts to make sure that we can keep more experienced investigators, because you know, I deal a lot with investigators in Laredo and the DA's office, and the more experienced ones are really good, you know? Um, so, Well, maybe, you know. maybe a better way to phrase this question then is, with every child placement, the calculation, there's, there's a risk calculation, right? So, so potentially, the, if, if your entire focus is on do not let this child you know, do everything you can, then ultimately, maybe that means, well, then we're not going to put them with any sort of kinship placement that might be considered risky at all. We're not going to, maybe they should be in a, you know, a facility. Um, but that's, that again, of course, comes with trade-offs, right? And so I just wonder, how do you strike that balance? No, it's going to, look, when you try, when you improve the whole system, we think in two-year terms in the legislature, I promise you two years from now, two years from today, when we look back to the prior two years, or two years from, let's say, in May of next year, um, the system will be better. You're going to see, I believe you'll see fewer kids that died. I believe you're going to hear fewer children that were severely abused. I believe you're going to hear m more examples of success. That's what I believe is going to happen. So you improve the overall system, and it's, it, it's not, it doesn't mean, uh, well, we'll do much better in this part, but this other part will suffer. No, I think we can continue to build on the kinship care program. I think we're going to. And I think that we're going to uh, make sure that we have an agency. That, I mean, Commissioner Whitman was a Texas Ranger. If there's anybody committed to public safety, it's going to be him. I think you're going to have a system where it's less and less likely where kids get put into any situation, whether it's with Ken uh, or someone else, where they may be hurt. I think that the parental child safety placement deaths Okay, all of two, way overblown. The media's got that all wrong. That is such an outlier. Um, this idea that kin kill kids wrong, okay? 
We've had a couple of foster care deaths as well. A couple of three, it's horrible. One child dying in the care of people are supposed to watch out for them is one child too many, no matter what. But where you see our deaths are in family-based safety services. In other words, when there's an investigation and the risk is high, but not high enough to do a removal, uh, or if that investigator is overwhelmed, she'll open the case up to family-based safety services. And that goes to another worker, family preservation worker. Now, in the old days, when this really worked, those cases were capped at eight cases a worker. Why? This is a high-risk situation, and that caseworker had to go into that home and make sure mom was taking her antidepressant and dad was getting his anger management, that child was safe, the environment was a good one. Now, they can barely go by once a month. Those are high-risk situations. That's where those children die. We can't go on with services as usual in family preservation. We've got to use models like safe care. These are evidence-based models that have drastically reduced recidivism of kids coming in. The cases are capped. The workers are well-trained and they're much safer. So we could do that for fatalities. We have got to invest overall in prevention. A huge amount of our deaths are due to abusive head trauma. And families that are in the environment, in the hospital, right away, need training in how to soothe an incessantly crying child. The number one cause of abusive head trauma is a, a child that's unrelenting in their crying. And we need to make sure every parent and the spouse, okay, dad too, is getting training on all the ways to soothe the child and permission to put that child down if in fact the crying won't stop. That's a huge area that, uh, that needs a big investment. Uh, just a note, we've got about maybe five more minutes before we open it up to audience questions, so um, be, be prepared and get you can start lining up at the microphones. Um, uh, Stephanie, uh, Representative Click, excuse me, I. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, how, what do you see as the, um, you know, if, if we're talking about um, preventive services, where do you see the legislature's role uh, in that? One of the reasons that a lot of these kids come into care is because of a family or their parents that are substance abusers or have mental health issues. and. Addressing those issues uh, are, are going to be part of that answer. Uh, you know, substance abuse is a huge problem, uh, not only in Texas but nationally. Right. And um, what about? I, I, just as a follow-up, though, I, it's a little off-topic. But if we're talking about families that are in poverty and connecting them to health care, do you see expanding Medicaid and expanding health insurance coverage as part of that? Uh, at this time, no. Uh, the experience in some of the other states. Uh, I was recently in New Mexico, and there was a joint meeting of the House and Senate Finance Committee. They expanded Medicaid, and they are having special sessions because of budget shortfalls. Uh, the match will be 90-10 next year, and it is having a huge impact on their budget. Yeah. Um, just what. This is a community problem. Right. This is, CPS is the agency of last resort. A, CPS alone is not gonna prevent child deaths. 50% of the kids that die of abuse and neglect aren't even known to the agency. You've got to have those resources in substance abuse and mental health and address the drivers outside of CPS that build the families. And mental health and substance abuse occurs in all economic strata. Uh, you know, it's not just a Medicaid-eligible population. It is, you know, across all economic stratas. Well, we do have, yes, it's true, 50% of our kids are unknown to CPS, but 50% of those kids are known to CPS. So while we can't save all of them, if they get a calling card, we have to look back and collect data and look at the variables and the characteristics and the caseworker of all the things that happened with child deaths that were known to CPS and do everything in our power to figure out what better moves we could have made, what better kinds of removal or service decisions we could have made. But clearly, 
at this moment, we are spending 94% of all of our child protection service budget on after-the-fact care. 6% is going to prevention. We'll never get ahead of a curve if we don't invest more in prevention. We have evidence-based programs that are home visiting programs like the Nurse Family Partnership that pair parents with very vulnerable mothers and families and really teach them well baby care. And these programs have an effect of anywhere between a 28 to 50% drop in child maltreatment. So that's where our focus should be. We know these programs work. We've got to scale them up, and we've got to target them to the highest risk areas of the state. And in addition to the home visiting programs, that's where you need to build up your community resources like substance abuse, mental health, and domestic violence, treatment and prevention, concrete resources, respite care, child care. It's, there's no silver bullet. A home visitor isn't going to do it all, but we know that's the most effective thing. So that is where the money should be going. Uh, with that, we'll open it up to audience questions. Just a, a programming note. Um, um, please introduce yourself at the microphone as you're asking your question, and you can address to some members of the panel or, all, or the entire panel. Um, and to steal a line from my boss, just please make sure your question ends in a question mark, or I will be interrupting it. <laughs> so go ahead. My name is Glenn Williams. I have a question about the consolidation of the Health and Human Services agencies. When is it going to happen with the FPS? Two, if it does, how will this improve delivery of services to foster children and abused and neglected children? Is, is it going to happen, yeah. the, the consolidation? Well, there's not, I mean, uh, we, for the most part, and I know the commissioner can speak some to this, but we really made a decision not to consolidate DFPS into HHSC. Now, there are some services we, you know, that, uh, there, there are some of the um, responsibilities that each agency has that we, where we tried to find, uh, you know, can we, can we consolidate those services? But generally speaking, DFPS was kept outside of the consolidation. We felt it was very important, and the judge was there to, to it wasn't a hard case to make, by the way, uh, that, that it really had to stand on its own. Uh, so I, I don't think that consolidation will, will affect um, DFPS in any, in any real way. Hi, my name is Rose Thayer and I'm a CASA volunteer and I work primarily with teenagers and an issue that I have seen come up is that a lot of these teens have charges against them for shoplifting, things mm -hmm. like that in the juvenile detention system. But in the most recent case, our kid got picked up on a charge out of uh, a warrant out of Williamson County where we didn't even know it existed, even CPS hadn't heard of this. And I get it's to protect this child's, um, you know, her future whenever she, you know, grows up and doesn't want these charges coming back to get her. But um, also you can't help a kid if you don't know that these charges are going on. And we could have dealt with that long before it became a warrant. And so now we've got three charges. She's got charges in three counties and is living in a fourth county. So I'm wondering how we can get juvenile detention and CPS foster kids to work together so that it's more of a holistic approach mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to solving the problems that these kids are facing. There's a concept called crossover court. They've yeah. got them in the major urban areas where the judge who hears the juvenile case hears the CPS case. That's the best way to do that. Frankly, it's hard even, warrants exist in every county, 254 counties in the state. There's not a system that you can go to to find every warrant out there, but, but that is clearly an issue. It affects employment, and it affects going in the military, it affects all kinds of things. Uh, there's a uh, program through Rio Grande Legal Aid where they've got some lawyers dedicated to foster children, so if it's pretty complex, you need to contact, I'll give you the name, I can't remember it right now, but there, there's a, a staff of lawyers that work specifically with foster kids. Can I say something? So. In my mind, my simple mind is judged, so could we do something that if someone is arrested and it's determined uh, that they are part of the foster care system or that they're on the streets, if you will, that that, that, that is, is reported to DFPS? Absolutely. So, so that, huh? She, it did go back to CPS. Oh, so they, CPS knew and, and you didn't? Well, then we were informed, but my issue is that had we known before she got picked up, 
Well, when were you, in, when were you informed? You said community service. When did, the, when, did the state, when did the agency let you all know you said you were informed? When she was in detention, in did, jail. Did CPS know there's a warrant out for arrest? That's, that's well, what he's addressing. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. so I'm suggesting that if, if they're arrested, and so my legislative directors here, we'll, we'll write up a bill on this that says <laughs> if they're arrested. Five minutes too late. No, 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 no. no. When, when, when they're arrested the very first time, they're notified. Say that again. Happened before the oh, so there was a charge oh, against. Yeah. Oh. That one you can't fix. Yeah. <laughs> but but I like the bill he's talking about. That when yeah. when when a child is is arrested, make sure that and crossovers. Yeah, but it, you're also speaking to a larger problem, which is what happens with multiple placements in different counties with high caseworker turnover and nobody has consistent communication or information about. Yeah, right. <laughs> not to, not to. Could you to... make it policy to have the caseworker once that youth goes into a new county? Could you make it policy for the caseworker to initially run a background check? <clears throat> Don't make any more policy telling caseworkers what to do. I mean, they, they, they are so overloaded right now. I mean, oh, I we, we, we need to talk about how they can get this information, but another, the worker shall do is not a good idea. Well, my name's Molly Broadway. Um, I'm a licensed social worker. Um, I've worked in the foster care agency. I'm actually a foster parent right now. So I've actually office that life works through a oh, grant yeah. agency. Um, so I have a couple points and questions to make. Um, a, I think my wife is, used to also be a CPS caseworker. So um, A, I think CPS should look at providing an EAP program for their employees um, because that's the biggest thing. We have tons of friends that have gone to therapists to get antidepressant drugs and anti-stress drugs. So that's definitely something that should be available yes. to them. Um, I also think that hiring better informed employees for CPS would be better, not just employees straight out of college with a social work degree, but those with experience in trauma-informed care experience. Mm -hmm. um, that's vitally important. CPS has a history of hiring just fresh out of college employees mm -hmm. because the incident uh, I, I hate to interrupt, but the, the question mark. Oh, the question mark. Okay, so my question is, in terms of the capacity issue, has there been any attention about how CPS and the state pays attention to foster care families and their supports and the input that they have to offer? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of work been going on with the agencies that have the foster parents. There's a lot of work going on get, letting them communicate. CPS has an EAP program. Interestingly, social workers, my wife is a social worker, are lousy at using it. Uh, I have a traumatic situation. They've had all kinds of problems. We say, well, let's let you use the EAP. Now I want to go back to work. So one, there's an EAP program. Two, the caseworkers who recommend therapy all the time are very reluctant to use therapy in their own life. So uh, we, we need to- I have experienced that. Oh, I have. <laughs> well, we have two different approaches then. Okay. Well, I think uh, what they're doing at uh, statewide intake in addressing secondary traumatic stress, they found that the workers answering the phones and listening to these stories were really having a hard time. Uh, they started a new plan where the psychologist was on site. Mm -hmm. uh, to, it's because there is, a, <coughs> a, I don't know, I guess there's some pride in not needing the help. But the, uh, they also now allow the statewide intake worker to time out shift her calls to her supervisor so she can have a timeout. They go into an area where they can do yoga or just take a five-minute break. And if it's so hard to hear the cases, imagine what it's like to be in the field. So this is going to be a whole other area because we used to talk about it as just those stress, hard work condition. Secondary traumatic stress is very real. Our workers are uh, really re-experiencing the abuse at night. They can't go to sleep. They're fatigued. Yeah. There has to be more than just here's a phone number, call somebody. It's got to be much more wraparound. And I think this session yeah. we're going to be addressing that. Well, has there been an approach? Because I know that I've spoken with foster families, and the common frustration is that we are considered contracted employees by the state. So a lot of us don't feel like the input we have is being listened to by the caseworkers when it comes time for court hearings and things like that, and the trauma that occurs with the children after they've had their home visitations with their parents. So. I mean, is there an idea about like how to approach that with the caseworkers? Any suggestion? I, okay. I, I actually did some training for judges last week, 
One of the things I said was to make sure to bring the foster parents into the courtroom and hear directly from the foster parents. Okay. Uh, they, they live with them 24 hours a day, so yeah. maybe it's not just the worker. There's other players in the system. Uh, the, not the, the, the child placement agencies that actually uh, contract with and, and recruit and train right. uh, the foster parents, uh, some of them are doing a very, very good job of this, and we need everyone doing a good job of making the foster parent part of a treatment team and treating them as, as professionals with respect. Okay. Well, thank you for being a foster parent. It's a huge oh, job, and we appreciate you. Not, don't applaud that, but thank you. Yeah. Uh, Jim East with the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. Two quick questions. Uh, one is for the advocates. Could you speak to the trend that you're seeing in the children that age out at 18 uh, as you track them and how many years you track them after they age out? And for the legislators, I'm curious the Nurse Family Partnership was mentioned. Another program is Intercept by Youth Villages. I'm curious when you do the appropriation process, what type of matrix do you use when you're reviewing the programs and giving points to evidence-based programs versus those programs that have just been in place for years? <laughs> That's correct. Do you want to answer the first one? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll speak very quickly to the uh, to the uh, to the foster care uh, aging out statistic question, and you know as to the longer term uh, numbers, you know I'll just quote the Jim Casey numbers you're probably uh, familiar with, and you know the numbers the outcomes are just terrible. Horrible. You know, one in four experiencing post traumatic stress disorder when it's one in five for you know U.S. war veterans, right? It's terrible. And that's not all because of foster care. It's because they've been abused or neglected, right? Um, you know, one in five will be homeless within a few years. Fifty percent with a uh, uh, you know a diagnosable mental mental health issue. By the time they're twenty-four, only one in two are working. Somewhere between three and thirteen percent will achieve a college degree. It's awful in terms of in terms of numbers and if you want to get a sense of uh, just beyond the numbers because if there's one thing our young adults really really hate the ultimate indignities being reduced to the numbers but if you want yeah. a sense of the uh, of the people then uh, you know all you have to do is is run out and uh, and and you know look at who's in line downtown at the arch you know, look at the controversy that this university uh, feels itself embroiled in around homelessness on on West Campus. You know, these are uh, these are our kids, right? So, you know, as and you know, the work uh, Texprotex has done and PEI within um, uh, around prevention is absolutely necessary. And I would argue that let's even think primary primary prevention to really look very carefully with what we're what we're doing with teens and younger adults in foster care and as they age out because we've got a lot of power there and uh, but I we really need to rethink what is the uh, what is the appropriate kind of non-fear based way to support young adults as they uh, as they age out. I'll, I'll just say really quickly that uh, a former staff member uh, emailed me a link to the Senate Health and Human Service Committee hearing. Um, I think it was last week, the weeks blur together. But she uh, she said to me, she goes, you're gonna want to look at nine hours and two minutes. And so, you know, we're all fast forward. She goes, I think you're gonna, you're gonna recognize this, uh, this person at nine hours and two minutes is a young man who, you know, and I don't even know how he found his way to the Capitol and sat there for nine hours, right? Which, you know, it's its own variety of trauma that you guys serve. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's long and it's dedicated and it's cerebral and it's intimidating for a young man who has been through so many foster care placements. But what he did in that moment was pour his heart out around mm, the trauma and the disruptions and what he kept saying over and over again, and we need to listen to this, is no one ever listened to me. Oh. So I would argue in this, in our debate about how we serve older youth in foster care and they age out, we have to find a place for the voice. And it is a voice that is often really uncomfortable and maybe angry and maybe not articulate. And we need to create the space to hear it because what I want to ask this young man is, if we had listened to you. If you had been listened to, what would have you told us? What could have we done differently? And that's a that's a voice that needs to be at the table. 
And there was also a second question that I, I don't want to get lost, I, um, and I don't know that I could paraphrase it. It was the right yeah, I got it. On, on the appropriations part. So, yeah. you know, I worked on appropriations a long time and, and will continue to, uh, although I'm not on the committee right now. But, um, you know, if you've had a program that's been around for 20 years and one that's been around for two years, and, and you look at the one that's been around for two years and feel like, oh, we've got a great measure of success here, um, that doesn't automatically mean you, you just cut the other one completely or cut it significantly. There, there are a lot of factors. You look at, you know, you look at the people you're helping with the, the program that's been around for 20 years. And I'll remind you that my colleagues on the Republican side have had complete majorities since 2003. House, Senate, Governor, Lieutenant Governor. If you've survived, a pro, if a program has survived from 2003 to, to today, I promise you it's been looked at pretty hard by the Republicans and it's been you know, either defended or certainly we look, as Democrats, we look at these things uh, very uh, diligently as well. And so it's, 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 it's just not that simple. Uh, I'll give you an example, the state-supported living centers. We have a tremendous debate about that. Very high cost. There are some that would argue we shouldn't have them anymore because there are not that many people that are being served. Well, we, the, this last legislative session, you had about 135 members in the House of Representatives that said, no, we're going to keep using state-supported living centers. And you had a Senate that said we shouldn't. Uh, and in the end, if you couldn't get both sides, then the program continues. So it's, it's, it's just taking a hard look at, at what appears to be the best approach. Um, and if both of the programs are good, the one that's been around 20 years, the one that's been around two, uh, then you fund both of them. If it makes sense to increase funding in one, lower some on the other, or vice versa, or increase in both, you do that. Uh, but, but trust me, we take a hard look at those things. I just want to add quickly, those programs that we know have evidence of efficacy through randomized control trials or other quasi-experimental trials, we can fund those, we should fund those, we should continue to monitor them for quality assurance and ensure they're working in Texas. But for those programs that, as Ray, uh, Representative Raymond mentioned, that we've just funded all these years, that don't have an evaluation of efficacy, it would be a good idea for us to put a small amount of money aside to the recipients of funding called our universities, okay? Right here, uh, every psychology department, sociology, social work department should get one program to evaluate $50,000 to compensate the professor. You've got a lot of PhD students all looking for a thesis, free labor. Uh, we can evaluate these programs, and you know, if we assign them out, 50,000, 10 programs, a half a million dollars, we get a lot of evaluation. And it doesn't mean we get rid of the programs that don't work. We can redose them, retweak them, do whatever to make sure they're effective. But even after that point and they don't work, let's put our money towards those that do. Thank you all so much. I'm sorry to say we're about out of time. Um, but um, thank you again, and I think a round of applause for our panelists. <laughs>